1: Well, whether you're a marketer or from agency and tech land playing with personalisation, segmentation, performance media or brand building, this debate may well mess with you a little. The default position for many, many companies in an economic downturn like we're in is to play the discounting and fire sale card or to deploy more performance-based marketing and messaging tactics. But as this panel of social scientists, marketers and ad agency bosses is about to discuss, There's a massive segment of the population that are high-discretionary spenders who don't play like traditional consumer segments and are driving a two-speed economic recovery, as Roy Morgan's CEO, Michelle Levine, said in MI3 last week. So let's unravel this consumer behaviour paradox. With us today is Ross Honeywell, Executive Director at the Centre for Social Economics and the whiz behind this consumer classification called NEOs, or the New Economic Order. Ross... A long time ago was at KPMG and has been working on understanding the neo-mindset for at least 15 years, I think. Ross is joined by Scott Browning, former marketing director at JB Hi-Fi, now chief customer officer at Jagged. Jonathan Coles, principal at advisory firm Premium and a former marketing director at Moet Hennessy. And the last but not least is Nick Cleaver, CEO at 303 Mullen Lowe. So, welcome, gents. Really looking forward to this one. And Ross, we're going to start with you. You started all this mess, so let's get into it and say, um, give us a quick overview, Ross, uh, on these neos. Who are they? What is different about them? How many are there in Australia, and how much money have they really got? Only about 15 questions for you answering
2: the first one, Ross. And welcome.
1: The neos,
2: as you say, is an acronym for uh, New Economic Order, and um This is a group in developed economies in particular that uh, are the high spending, frequently spending consumers. Um, We've developed an algorithm a few years ago, as you pointed out, to uh, identify who was it in the uh, economy who was the most valuable. And we uh, ended up identifying this classification, this group. So these, these people are they, they they earn more but, more importantly, they spend more. Earning isn't a really good determinant of future spending behaviour. So you need to know that these people have spending propensity and that's what we identified. So there's 4.7 million of these NEOs in Australia, 64 million of them in the US. Um, and um, they are the uh, socially progressive, typically. They're typically very well educated. Um, they believe as much in learning a living as they do in earning a living. They're great planners and they're architects of their own life outcomes. Uh, They're people like you and me, Paul. They have lists. Yes, very long lists. They're very optimistic about the future and they juggle an intellectual bent with the desire to, uh, you know, change the world. Um, They're conspicuous activists but they're inconspicuous consumers. And one thing that's uh, interesting, just to finish this first bit, you're born a neo and you die a neo. Um, the opposite of a neo is what we call traditional consumers. And there are 10 million of them in Australia. Uh, and you're born one and you die one. There's no migration between the two types. So I can't aspire to be a Neo, Ross. I am what I am. You can aspire to be more like a Neo, if you like, right. but ultimately <laughs> when the when the going gets tough, you will revert to type.
1: And, and it's interesting, we're going to delve a bit deeper into this, but you mentioned the traditionals, which is the sort of the antithesis, I guess, of the Neos. Just to sort of uh, whet the listener's appetite, we're talking here about sort of the behaviour of traditionals, traditional behaviour, which is most of what most brands and marketers are playing to at the moment, which is sort of discounting some of the rational benefits
2: and discounting in price off.
1: That's sort of essentially, have I got that right or am I messing with your, your, your
2: archetype? No, no, there's two, two crucial bits in what you just said. Uh, the first one is about behaviour. Um, a lot of people believe that past behaviour is the best predictor of future behaviour. Um, the algorithm that uh, I've created with uh, 194 different factors in it has um, 82 attitudinal factors. Uh, And they're there because it's attitudes and values that determine our future behaviour, not past behaviour. It's not about where someone went last week. It's about where they'd really love, where they desire to go next week. Uh, And and that's really the predictive modelling that we do. Um, And um, so the difference is, uh, can be measured in behaviour for all that. To come back to your question, um, you know, the NEOs, spend more more frequently uh, as i said at the beginning than anyone else um, whereas the traditionals are very reluctant spenders the 10 million people with a traditional mindset and this is mindset modeling the traditionals with a very the, you know with a very traditional mindset are very reluctant spenders um, even the wealthy ones so only 6% of them are in the top third of elective spenders in the economy whereas 90% of neos 90 compared to 6% are in the uh, top third of elective spenders in the economy.
1: Uh, The final point here, Ross, before we come back to you, we'll get through some of the other panellists, is I think, and I'm sorry if I'm going to stuff this figure up, but I think upwards of 70% of discretionary spend, or elective discretionary spending, is coming from NEOs? Have I butchered that? No, you've got it perfectly. Okay. So it's quite significant. They are driving, you know, a big, big element of uh, discretionary
2: spending in the market. It is significant. Of course, a lot of marketers believe that the entire world is designed and operates for traditionals, so, you know, they have the traditional value proposition. Which estranges Neos. So, you know, they really have to start aligning their brands with the high value, high spending consumers. Scott Browning, you're a big advocate uh, or a believer in the Neo strategy. At your
1: time at JB Hi Fi, it was big for you. You deployed it, you deployed a strategy there. I'm interested in what you did there. It's not something that I would have thought was a sort of in JB's, JB Hi-Fi's sweet spot to target the high-end big discretionary spenders. What did you do around NEOs at JB? You're doing it again at Jagger now where you are, but what did you do at JB and why? And welcome, uh, Scott.
3: Yeah, well, the, the challenge at JB when we started, it was very much a nascent business. It was just gone to a public company, had 20 stores, committed to the market that it was going to do 100 plus stores. Um in our minds, in the background, we had a target of around about 200 stores. So, and at the time, it was a music retailer.
1: Right. So, this is what, 2005, mid 2000s, then it was it Scott? 2003, okay. 2004.
3: Yep. And so, a lot was happening in that industry. My background was at Kodak. So, I saw what disruption does to businesses, you know, from the technological side. So, being ready for it. So, the key for any brand, especially on that growth cycle, is how do you differentiate but remain relevant and grow profitably? especially when you're going to roll out 200 stores off the back of a card. So, you know, it was it was important that we understood we knew JB Hi-Fi had a, something called the X-factor. There was a it was a distinctive brand, there was something going on there, but there was a lot of mythology in the business on who its customer was. People were searching for who was the JB Hi-Fi customer? Was it a 55-year-old guy from Dandenong that wanted to buy a plasma TV or was it you know, some emo in, in the city that spent a lot of money on music. But back in those days, there was retailers didn't have a lot of data on their customers. And when you looked at primary research, to Ross's point, the vast majority of respondents come from the volume of the population, but they might not have been the high lifetime value customers. And so we were somewhat desperate to find something that we could build data and strategy around. And it was just purely by accident we come across NEOs and then we were able to run the Neo profile across our business to discover, you know, about 45% of our customers come up as the Neo group, and they're only 25% of the population. You were over,
1: you over-indexing then.
3: Massive over-index. So then you, mm. you do the formulation on value. They could be of upwards of about 80% of value, and that that makes a lot of sense. You know, that, that people who are spending dropping five grand or at that those days about eight grand on a plasma TV, they're not cheapskates. Right. But they're looking for value when, you know, once they decided what brand of TV to buy, well, they don't, they don't want to pay a premium for that. They want to pay the premium for the product, but as a retailer, it's a different challenge. Um, but you still have to be relevant to those consumers. So NEOs, you know, we were looking at it through a keyhole and NEOs opened the door and you are just able to walk walk out and have a really good look around. And it really transformed because it debunked a lot of mythology about who our customers were what they wanted. So we can have a, the same mindset in a Danny Nong as we did in Camberwell or, you know, in the Sydney parlance, you know, Parramatta versus Bondi Junction. Mm. As to Ross's say, we were looking for a mindset um, that, that responded to the business. So therefore we're able to say, well, okay, a lot of the things that the business were doing might have been strong cues towards traditionals and you don't want to throw that baby out with the bathwater. But for NEOs to grow and to develop and evolve in a technological space, we had to be ultra sensitive to the NEO mindset because in seven years time, you know, the business was going to look very different. So we had to go on that journey with them. It was very clear that these people, you know, valued certain things and we just had to stay on top of it. We didn't want to relegate the traditionals. But the neos were obviously at the core of everything we did, and then that really opened it up in everything from store size to assortment strategy in terms of categories that we weren't even in, that we had to get in and dominate within 10 years. Shaped everything.
1: So you were you you, you JB jumped in hook, like I mean, they it was all in the deep end. That was all in on this.
3: Well, neo provided us with the statistical support to the intu- intuition that we had around it. You know, you've you've got to go in it. You know, we had some very intuitive retailers running that business there's no question about it I was very fortunate to be just a steward of the brand and that and during that time but it illuminated certain factors that provided the data or statistical support to the strategy that were able to turn back to time and time again over my 12-year period We constantly return back to the data around this group uh, in, in confirming decisions because you might have been in the middle of something and not quite knowing whether you're on the right track so and these are times when retailers didn't have customer data. You know, it's just you were flying by sight all the time. There was no instrumentation on the dashboard. Right. So you had to go to something deeper, but it reduced the amount of dataless debate on who our customers was. As a retailer, I mean demographics are just a joke. You're better off with better off with star signs because demography is just Geography.
1: What, what is your star sign anyway, uh, Scott? I don't really want to throw it out. <laughs> I don't want to go there. You can
3: probably guess what it is. Yeah, so, yeah, that's one. So, demography, you know, if a retailer's going to, their demographics are going to be where their store are. If you plonk a store in Dandenong, you're going to have different demographics than you have in Camberwell.
1: Well, I want to come back to um, that conversation about whether you can do both. And, and you know, you're right, I would have put JB into a traditionalist or a traditional sort of primary segmentation. Before we get to that, I just want to ask you, you're at Jagged now. Are you deploying neos uh, a NEO strategy there or how does that look? Because it's a very different sort of business that you're in now. Well,
3: yeah, the, the philosophy is to the extent that any business that ignores NEOs in their trajectory ignores them at their peril.
1: So the answer is yes, you're in it. Yes,
3: yes, we're in it. (laughs) Right. You know, there are subtleties to everything and you've got to be very careful about rules, you know, or, you know, you've you've got to have guidelines, you've got to have structures but when you're a retailer, you're playing a different game than if you're a brand. So difference between a Volvo and a direct-to-customer retailer and then there's lots of businesses that sit in between that, you know, like an insurance company versus you know, a car company versus someone that deals direct to consumer, that's somebody that mediates their business through custodians like retailers and things. There's lots of different dynamics to this in terms of what a neo wants from a destination per se.
1: Just very quickly, how has business been for for Jagged in in the last 12 months? I mean, maybe for those that don't know, explain a little bit about it.
3: Yeah, well, because of the neo strategy around Jagged, Jagged was about a business 70% wholesale 12 months ago, pre-COVID.
1: To to uh, retail outlets, fashion retail outlets?
3: Yeah, say Meijer, Iconic, oh, yeah. these type of businesses. So 70 80% of that business. And then they had a, a store, um, which was a traditional sort of location, and then probably you know 10 or 15% of its business was direct-to-customer in that space. So the strategy for Jagged, right, using the NEO guideline, is they had to move more of its business direct-to-customer. That's what the customer wanted in order to control the brand as an experience brand, which was always the same as JB Hi-Fi. Customer experience, you need to control far more of the parameters if you're going to talk to a Neo and be successful. Right. COVID was a godsend in in one respect because every single wholesaler cancelled all their orders. Right. And Jagged was sitting on all the stock with a strategy to move in that direction or, you know, have a bigger share of the pie. And so within the space of three weeks, we'd closed our store, had no wholesalers, had a truckload of stock that we had to move, so we moved to 100%. Right. I guess the big thing with Neos is what we learned at JB was, was the concept of reciprocal trust. Businesses say, oh, I want people to trust me, and yet they go around not trusting their customers. So how can you get your customer to trust you if you send them signals that you don't trust them? Things that might not seem critical at the time, but after they experience the brand, they become very loyal we put a lot of emphasis on return policy to create a great experience. That's, that's really what it comes down to.
1: I'm going to come back to the really fascinating stuff and fascinating the transformation of Jagged from, as you say, wholesale to direct-to-consumer and ready to go. Love to dig into that a bit more. Hey, so Jonathan, um, your ex Moet Hennessy in, in, in marketing, uh, it makes sense, I guess, You know everything we've heard so far, that NEOs would be a primary target at, at a luxury group like that. Did it work?
4: It, it, it did and it, and it worked incredibly well. Uh, and it depends on sort of what you use as metrics for what works well, but uh, for an LVMH, uh, the task was make sure you deliver on your short-term business objective uh, and critically make sure you maximize long-term value growth and you do that whilst retaining your uh, your, your margin. Uh, and so to be able to do that over a 10-year period uh, using NEOs, uh, and, you know using those metrics, yeah, it worked exceptionally well. What I did learn and I learned very quickly was this wasn't just about buying an audience this and it comes back a little bit to what scott's just saying uh it's understanding the mindset of the neo and then helping all your partners across the entire route to market uh to make sure that you uh, meet and exceed those customer those neo expectations at every touch point all the time uh, and, and therefore whether that be uh, a creative partner um and nick and nick will talk a little bit about that but uh, do your creative partners uh, absolutely understand and uh, neos and their value expectations and critically um, for us um, with my, my NSC, a large proportion of our sales were through Dan Murphy's through vintage sellers. Therefore, how do you help them as partners deliver on what they want to do, which is to create the maximum value for their most valuable customers? And so I say I quickly learned that it was making sure that we helped everybody across every touchpoint understand a NEO as best as possible.
1: Jonathan, was there any, I mean, the primary market would be NEOs, though, for some of those, for the Lux brands, right? So was there traditionals that buy that portfolio? Uh,
4: yeah, absolutely. If you can have some very wealthy uh, individuals who don't spend a lot uh, and they have a traditional mindset. They might come in and they might buy uh, Verve Clicquot, uh when, when it was on special in Dan Murphy's one week and then maybe a couple of weeks later they come in and buy Mum. I was particularly interested in the consumer that actually really desired a brand. For example, let's take Verve Clico, uh, and, and they desired all the value that was built into a brand like Verve Clicquot. not only its quality. But the positioning it had in terms of maybe supporting business women, uh, the way it was brought to life around the world, uh, and to desire and be part of the lifestyle of, of Verve Kiko, uh, I was interested in that, that consumer more so than the one that bought me on special once a week.
1: Right. Um, now, you, you're now advising other companies at premium, uh, Jonathan, on NEOs. W- what are you seeing from brands in the market at the moment? What have they done through COVID around this? Have they done anything? And what's, uh, what's going on into the next year or so?
4: I always think it's good to learn from the best. So my starting point is always to sort of look to what luxury is doing and then say, what can we learn from luxury And if you look at what the luxury brands have been doing over the last 12 months, first of all, they've been putting their customers and their employees sort of as their priority. Uh, And therefore, if they've had to try and convert perfume lines to creating sanitization, great, they'll do that as quickly as possible. But critically, with their brands, they've been doing what they always do, and that is to um, make sure that they reinforce the provenance and authenticity of their brand and constantly recreating and innovating. And in essence, trying to find that point of timelessness where you really are true to your origins, but always fresh. So they've been highlighting their craftsmanship. They've been continuing their creative partnerships. And uh, they've continued to do what uh, luxury brands do exceptionally well
1: all the time. Great. Now, Nick Cleaver, uh, you're another backer of Neo's. I think you're a fan uh, of the whole, whole notion. How are you using them and how widespread is the understanding of this, this whole segmentation, if you like, although Ross will wrap me over the knuckles for calling it a segment, I think. So I'll take that back. But how, what's your take on Neo's and, and, and your clients? How are they using it, Nick? Um, is there uh, some interesting things going on in your world?
0: Yeah, perhaps I'll start by answering that by talking about why we see it as immensely relevant to our business and how we see its application. Um, All marketers and advertisers face one overriding huge challenge, which is we're in a battle for attention. And um, in this increasingly complex media, always on media world in which we live, uh, how do you engage brands with people in the most meaningful way? And in that sense, um, I think NEOs are immensely helpful. Uh, They're incredibly useful Uh, in terms of bringing together the core disciplines of an agency. Now, we've got an agency model that brings data, creative and media thinking together. Uh, And, and, you know, that's increasingly becoming uh, the trend. Um, So uh, there are different disciplines within our agency, whereby we see NEOs as a common thread that can link uh, those disciplines together and then actually help us target the people we want to target as we go into market with performance marketing. So I think one of the uh, attributes about Neo thinking that we haven't talked about yet is that um, it's not just a, 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 a database, it's not just a philosophy, but it comes with a holistic piece of thinking that actually helps you build creative content, which is appealing. So if you talk to our ECD and our creative guys, Um, they would see neo-thinking as something which is very liberating and inspiring. Uh, Ross will talk about uh, neos being drawn to things that, you know, that are engaging, intelligent, um, that uh, treat neos uh, 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 in in a a way that acknowledges their intelligence, that's entertaining. So there are guidelines for creating content that comes out of neo-thinking, and then that also then translates into where, when, and how you actually place that content in the marketplace. So I see uh, neo thinking as a as a like a if you like a a common thread that can connect our thinking from ideation right through to implementation. And I think that's really important for us as a business, and it's really important for our clients.
1: Examples, Nick, of where you've you've you're using this. Have you got any any examples you can talk about of of where it's worked or? or hasn't even? You
0: know, we are working uh, with Ross and the team at the moment in terms of operationalizing the data uh, and, and implementing it. It's been, um, we are working with a large financial institution at the moment um, and um, implementing um, the whole um, uh, 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 Neo uh, piece in terms of the creative that we're developing and how we're going to market. Um, I don't have the liberty of talking about who they are. Um, it's also uh, currently starting to be used by a couple of our other clients. Um, so I don't have a neat package that I can actually put on the table in front of you and say, well, here is the case study. But it's certainly, um, I think from our point of view, uh, it's influencing the way our business is opera- operationalizing, and it's also beginning to influence some of our key clients. I, I think you can see, I mean, coincidentally, I, I think, uh, and the reason why I think we were drawn to um, the whole Neo piece is that within our body of work that we currently have, uh, um, I think you know, there's al- there's almost a great deal of um, uh, Neo thinking within our work if, if in the past it was unknowing. So the work we do for Budget Direct or the work we do for Audi and clients like this, Neo <coughs> neo thinking resonates really well with the work we've done in the past and so we see it as a potential to enhancing our effectiveness going into the future
1: ross um nick talked about how neo's uh, neo strategy is influencing uh his creative but also the media uh and the media choice and selection of how to find and message people and where they might be neo's media consumption i mean do we how do you find them when you you know who they are and what they what they typify but how do you how do you find them
2: so neos are uh on pretty much every media agency's database. Uh, if they subscribe to Roy Morgan, um, then they have it in their database, they just can't see it. So when there's a commercial arrangement, we flick a switch and it, it turns on. So it's to- totally operationalised across uh, all media, um, from uh, you know traditional media right through to programmatic. Um, so you can actually target and buy them uh, really anywhere in the, uh, in, in, in the entire media uh, ecosystem that's taken years that's been a really really big job of neo 2.0 uh, you mentioned that this goes back 15 years it's really only in the last couple of years that we've totally reconfigured the algorithm and all of this uh, uh, particularly digital ready, neo-operational, uh, uh, you know, capabilities.
1: What a wonderful plug I just got that. That was a window for a plug there, uh, Ross. Well done. Yes, thank you. <laughs> the, the the interesting bit, though, there is, is their media consumption behaviour different?
2: Their media consumption is dramatically different from traditional. So, um, traditionals, if, if we take big generalities, traditional skew towards, um, uh, you know, particularly television, radio, uh, whereas uh, neo's uh, do everything. You know, they're, they're just... They do more of everything all the time, um, but they they are really deeply embedded in the the online. So th- this this is a kind of a natural play. They skew heavily towards online with everything they do. Um, you know, they pretty much live their lives online and uh, and have been doing so for many years. Um, that said, there are some really interesting. Uh, uh, media channels that they do choose, and one of them is cinema, when cinemas are open, um, they, they they really like cinema, they like magazines, you know, so there are some kind of quirky things in there as well uh, as the, uh, the obvious. Scott, I want to come back to this theme
1: earlier about... Can a, a brand or a company do both and talk to Neos and traditionals? What is the risk there or what is the tension in doing that and can everyone do it? So can every company have a, a Neo strategy even if they're talking to traditionals?
3: Yeah, so this is purely from a retailer's point of view. The the answer is yes. If you're a premium position brand already, you know, like a Verve, Plicot or whatever, it's, it's slightly more complicated than that but in terms of why people use a brand a retailer is really people expect certain things so you still have to deliver what people expect before you even get started so and in JB Hi-Fi's case we we as a retailer with many stores and in those days 99% of your business was coming from the store 100% even wouldn't matter what your advertising campaign was what happened in store was critical to your long-term success the store environment was pretty much Neo-focused in terms of how you narrated that store. There's an orchestration of a narrative in terms of a journey throughout the store that increased dwell time, for example, improved engagement, was entertaining. Neos value sort of three things, I think, really well. They value art in a form that, you know, where art brings luster and conviction to purpose, as I sometimes say. Um, They value authenticity and they value that trust factor. But you have to look at it in as those things are just negative concepts. They're negative concepts in a sense they don't really exist. They exist through the absence or presence of something else. So trust is really a lack of distrust, that authenticity is a lack of something that isn't there, so no, no sort of personality of a brand. And, I mean, it's hard to say what art is, but when it's not there, it's very obvious. There's no energy. There's no, uh, you know, so we had stores with staff, we said, Yeah, we had handwritten tickets, but they create their own signs. And and they just we just worked on non negotiable don'ts. Rather than do all of this we just said, just don't do this. This is what we're not.
1: Today's JB Hi-Fi environment, the stores, has anything? Cha- so has it changed today, or it's the same? They continue with that. Yeah. So the, the the sense when you get in there into a JB Hi-Fi is you're right. You've got handwritten, um, you know, posters, and it's, it still seems to me, and this is where you open to correction. But it seems like you go in there. It's a very retail environment where it's there's there's, there's offers, uh, and it's not slick. It's a, it's almost the opposite to slick. That's okay to a neo.
3: I mean, if it's authentic. Right. And and it's good for a traditional because there's no cognitive dissonance with the fact that I'm going to get a deal here or this is what they expect. However, you know, Apple have invested or JB Hi-Fi and Apple have invested $150,000 in an Apple display. Right. Um, but it's sort of incorporated in the narrative in the right positioning. The concept of curation was a big development in the brand story in terms of how do you leverage that and you had the emergence of brands like Apple that understood the concept of curation and customer experience, and you're able to work with them. Our biggest competitor shunned Apple at the time because of they were a low margin.
1: Right, okay.
0: I mean, Paul, I, I, I would say that when you ask the question about um, how you manage Neos and traditionals, are they mutually exclusive? There's a, I think there's a sort of um, a parallel piece of thinking when you look at Binane Field Study about brand building versus short term promotion and in a sense i think there's a similarity here which is probably the answer for most mass marketers is you you don't want to exclude a very large important client base albeit they may not be neos but when you look at binet and fields work you you could say that 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 brand building brand narrative piece of work that engages people Uh, is so important for NEOs, but uh, as Ben Enfield say, we're not ignoring the fact there are imperatives on occasions, uh, if it's a 60-40 split, as they suggest, that you actually use retail price-driven promotion to actually drive uh, volume. So I think there's a little bit of a parallel
1: there for me. Mm. And, and, Ross, you talk a lot about the fact that brand is actually the the critical uh, differentiator here for NEOs versus anything else. Yes,
2: I do. Um, before I do that, I just want to say one thing, uh, and that is that um, there's a business rule when it comes to the NEO mindset, uh, and that is that traditionals will go where NEOs go, but NEOs are very reluctant to go where traditionals go. So any business that's interested in attracting neos is much better to start with um, a, a very neo value proposition because it'll bring the traditionals along as well. Uh, in terms of brand, uh, one of the things that's uh, really important to understand is that um, the past probably three, four, even five years, there's been this rush to the bottom of the purchase funnel. and. Uh, uh, complete a complete obsession with um, activation at the bottom of the funnel and ROI, uh, whereas uh, we're, we're starting to forget the investment in the brand uh, and that that's that's a road to nowhere. Uh, one of the things that's interesting about the NEOs is that they shorten the distance between the top of the funnel and the bottom, bottom of the funnel. So the distance between brand building at the top and actual sale activation at the bottom is much shorter with the NEO. They just take a whole lot of steps. And this this comes down to a simple principle. Everyone wants the best price. Everyone wants the best price. But for the traditional consumers, the 10 million traditional consumers in Australia, it always starts and ends with price. But for NEOs, price is just the cost of falling in love. And if you can't get them to fall in love with your brand at the top of the funnel, you'll never get to the bottom. How does that
1: land, Nick, when you talk to your your clients about this? what What is the resistance? Uh, and, and Ross and I were talking about it the other day. Um, the primary resistance from brands and marketers is to, to deploy a neo strategy. Uh, there is pushback, because right, not everyone's doing it. Well, certainly not everyone's talking about it, at least, anyway.
0: Yeah, look, I, I think uh, many, obviously, many clients have... Um, Uh, invested a great deal of money in building their own databases or they are already attached to different typologies and i think so there's a already um investment that's gone into a a way of thinking and a segmentation of the market that that they they, they may have been using to actually drive their business and so uh they may see uh the neo-data neo-thinking is as perhaps you know uh, uh, a a different uh, uh, segmentation that's not appropriate to them. I mean, my perspective on that is that actually um, you can take a, a Neo database. It doesn't mean that you can't layer in and filter other screens across it, uh, depending on what category you're in. So I think um, I think some uh, clients perhaps believe it's, it's an all or nothing strategy. And maybe, you know, Ross would say it is. But um, I think there's a... Uh, an ability to actually take uh, Neo thinking and Neo data, and then look at what data you have within your own organization. And then obviously finding out how many NEOs are in your primary uh, database, um, in your primary data, is you know an interesting starting point. But there are ways of actually, uh, I think, which many clients don't understand that you can actually bring together different pieces of data to actually enhance the relevance of this to your particular category.
1: We've got um, probably three questions uh, to get through and we'll, we'll wind up because suddenly I've realised we're out of time. But, Ross, there's a great anecdote that you talk about in your conversation with David Thodey, who was then CEO of Telstra, about segmentation uh, and how they were dealing with it. You've also got some broader thoughts on segmentation because it can mess with a lot of companies when they try to
2: think about a NEO deployment. Yeah, David was just brilliant in that he, uh, when he heard about the NEO thing, he said to me, uh, so what you're saying, Ross, is we've got these... Six or eight needs-based segments. This is at Telstra? This is at Telstra, and they were really, really smart segments. You know, it was a really smart segmentation. Um, and we've got a different value proposition for each of them. That's a lot of a lot of expense and a lot of effort. What you're saying is that instead of the six or eight vertical ones, you can do a horizontal um, run across all of those segments. So we don't throw our segments out. We keep our segments. But you can identify the proportion of NEOs in each segment and we can do one neo-value proposition across all of those segments, uh, you know, as a horizontal slice. Uh, is that right? And I said yes. And um, he gave us their uh, lowest value needs-based segment, these very smart segments, and said, go and see if you can find any uh, hidden value there. And we, un- we uh, modelled the, the, the process and found $80 million of, uh, of hidden value in that. Um, so you know that's that's how it works with segments. So this is not a segmentation. It, it's it's a way. It's a mindset. It's a piece of data science that is segment agnostic.
1: What about personalization? How does it fit into this? Because obviously you've got a lot of, you know, we'll get, uh, the next question is around CX, but we have uh, a lot of uh, investment in, in thinking and time and budget going into personalization strategies. Uh, what does that mean for, for, for NEOs, Ross? Well, the,
2: you, you have to have hyper-personalisation uh, with NEOs uh, and... Um, uh, and that really means that you, every single leader in marketing, every CMO, needs to really think about this as a kind of Casanova strategy. Uh, Casanova uh, wasn't, um, you know, that attractive. Um, word is, he wasn't even that good a lover. He just made every woman feel like she was, she was the only woman in the world, and that's the principle. That's the guideline for dealing with NEOs.
1: What does this mean for customer experience then, Scott? Because there's so many big platforms, and I, I want Jonathan and, and um, Nick's view on this really quickly as well, As there's so many, um, there's big platforms that out there sort of doing uh, generic customer experience, journey mapping for customers and so forth. Can they actually carve out and do it differently, or do you talk to the NEOs and the traditionals to be happy, which is what Ross talked about earlier?
3: You can start going very granular on this stuff, but you can make a lot of mistakes then with NEOs. If you get it wrong, you spoil the recipe in a, in a way. So if you step back from it one step to use the Casanova process, it's about at least displaying empathy to the other. Is that you that you know it comes down to that reciprocal trust issue, but it's putting in front of them solutions and things that they really need in, in, in the space that can be very generic in a sense of an offer. And it doesn't disenfranchise traditionals so it's very important that you don't alienate this audience if you want to grow and differentiate so you can't make the mistake of tactics that might work with a traditional thinking that you know it's going to play out you know some people try to you know it's like if you get an over personalized message but they've completely missed the mark you know you can get into you know people go well obviously they don't know what they're doing you know, there's just guessing on this, so um, and that can affect everything from performance marketing to retargeting issues. People don't like to be retargeted if they've already bought the product.
1: Nick, uh, Nick, um the uh, this the, the implications for customer experience and CX and that whole tech platform stuff that goes on. You got any thoughts there?
0: Gosh, in the last twelve months with COVID, um, um, you know, we've seen an explosion of uh, of the whole online world and brands going online, and I, I, I think. Um, you know the, the great watch out for brands is the the uh, um, parity experience that many people experience from going from one brand to another, and there's a there's a generic on lots, for some companies, there's a, a generic online experience, and I think therefore, you know, using neo thinking uh, and the the prompt it gives you to develop unique, relevant, inspiring experiences online is a great prompt for marketers to think. How can I make uh, the, the the genuine brand experience that we've got, you know, for this brand, come to life in a special way for us online? So I, I think it helps. It helps develop unique online experiences and get us away from a very generic sense that we're I think, feeling that we get at the moment.
1: Yeah, and it is very generic, and I think that's sort of well, that's part of the promise of technology, right? Is to scale and 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 sort of broad sweeping stuff. So if there's, if there's some nuance in their customer experience, it's welcomed. Um, Jonathan, to wrap this up, um, I'll ask each of you, what should marketers be prioritizing for 2021? Certainly in the context of the conversation we've just had, uh, your thoughts for the, what's what we've we got left? 10 months left, crikey, we're in March nearly already.
4: First of all, uh, absolutely be uh, customer value obsessed. So uh, um, from a Neos perspective, we know that hyperlocal is, is increasingly important. Uh, we know that authenticity and provenance is as as always incredibly important in terms of value and evaluation uh, ultimately maximize anticipation and, and critically uh constantly through your partners through your route to market through your communications deliver on um, on the moments of truth and, and, and exceed expectations wherever possible
1: scott your advice to your peers and on on the the marketing side the brand side yeah okay
3: i come back to that it's Quite a perennial thing, um, but it's it's that customer experience. It's it's really, and in 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 the digital world, it's all about friction. You know, in terms of well, getting rid of it. Yeah, <laughs> it needs to be seamless and elegant. Right. Uh, in a way to focus on, and you know, Nick made a really good point. You know, if I go back to JB days, the Neo opened up who our real competitors were, and our real competitors were people like Qantas or restaurants or new cars, cinemas. And if you look at recent results for people like JB Hi-Fi, all those competitors were shut down and they've doubled their profit, for example. Right. In the GFC, people stopped buying cars and a bit of overseas travel. JB Hi-Fi profits surged. You know, it's sort of a case of who are your real competitors when you're a neo? It comes down to businesses that provide a great customer experience. And today, your value as a brand, your perception as a brand, is not measured by your category competitor if you're getting a great online experience with JB Hi-Fi and you go to a Bunnings and you don't get a great online experience or a different thing, you're going to devalue the Bunnings brand versus the JB Hi-Fi brand and you're going to ha- ask questions about, do they really care about giving me a great experience at all my different touch points? Um, I mean, Bunnings have done a great job of that in the last 12 months, for example, and they're, they're kicking goals. But at Jagged, you know, our, we also say, so, so, well, you know, we, we've got to measure our brand against a Netflix, for example, or an Uber um, because people are having these great low-friction experiences. So instead of delivering clothes and those type of things, that's what we're focused on is constantly removing friction and making less
1: mistakes too and getting our customers to put up with it. Great points. Uh, Nick, uh, final words of wisdom in terms of priorities for this year?
0: Well, I think um, marketers are on a journey uh, where whereby they are endeavouring to harmonise Uh, The compete sometimes the competing interests of uh, data created in media, and I think uh, the more they harmonize the thinking that runs through their marketing operations, the more effective they'll be in actually delivering brand experiences up to their customers that are really meaningful, authentic, and compelling. So, um, yeah, it's uh, I don't think there's any dramatic step change going on in 21, but coming out of a recession, coming out of COVID. I think the smarter you are in using data, using perhaps neo-thinking to harmonise your data, creative and media thinking could deliver better results for
1: you. And the final words, thanks Nick. Um, the, the final uh, observations to to, to Ross, uh, big tip um, for 2021 for, for
2: brands. My hope is that 2021 will be the year when the C-suite recognises that there is not just one market and that there are two fundamentally different markets with two fundamentally different types of consumers with totally different mindsets. Um, It's time to stop talking about the market. It's time to stop talking about the consumer and start talking about nuanced views to unlock hidden value.
1: It makes entirely common sense, but then we don't necessarily uh, operate like that as humans, do we, Ross?
2: We do increasingly. One one of the things that I do know is that when you're dealing with the C-suite in particular, they're weak in the face of evidence. They're weak in the face of data science. When they uh, see the data science, they start to recognise that the world is not how they saw it before and they all, as an organisation, have to think differently about it. Ross
1: Honeywell, Scott Browning, Jonathan Coles, Nick Cleaver, thank you. Great conversation, uh, really insightful and I think I want to be a, a neo when I grow up. So stay safe, gents, and um, we'll, uh, we'll follow this up. Thank you. MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre, that's Moi. Producer Nick Slater, music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to podcast1.com.au or search MI3 Audio Edition on Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button. Listener.